Trumanitarian. This week's episode of Trumanitarian is with Ellie Kemp from Translators Without Borders. It's a really interesting conversation around the role that language plays in including and excluding different populations. It is truly troubling to think about how far removed we at times are from the people we serve and how language can be something that really separates us from truly understanding what the needs and priorities of crisis-affected populations are. It's such a thought-provoking conversation. I hope you'll find it useful and rethink your daily work in light of what, what Ellie has to share. Enjoy the conversation. Ellie Kemp, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here. You work with Translators Without Borders as the Head of Research, uh, Evidence and Advocacy. And maybe let's begin with that. Why do we need Translators Without Borders in the first place? Um, well, in the humanitarian sector, we need it because we have a massive unacknowledged problem, for the most part, around language. We have a blind spot. Um, there is an assumption, and it's one that as a humanitarian of 21 years standing, I've made myself, that basically language is something that our national colleagues are going to deal with. <laughs> and as a result, we we massively limit the the reach and the impact and the accountability of the work we do, because we are simply not looking at this problem. It's a little bit like gender inequality 30 odd years ago, when we all suddenly realized that if we simply ignored it, we weren't going to, uh, we weren't be, going to be able to address it. It's interesting that you describe it as a blind spot, because you would assume that, that an organization who works with crisis-affected populations in, in a given country would want to be able to speak to the people they work with. And so, I mean, how can we get away with this? Yeah, well, like, uh, probably power dynamics in the sector. The people that know that we have a problem aren't the ones that are making the decisions. The decisions are made in English. The whole sector works in English. In some contexts, you know, DRC, the, the, the decisions are made, the strategies and programs are developed in French. But to get at that table, even to engage in a cluster, a, a Congolese organization or a Congolese individual at least has to be able to articulate ideas and, and make a case in French. So in a the former colonial language which is also one of the official languages, but it's not the language that most of Congo's population are competent enough to engage in. If we take DRC as an example, how many languages are there and how many languages should we be able to operate in? Uh, second one is a really hard question um, and we could only answer it with data. There's something over 200 languages spoken in, in DRC. Um, to know which languages, we would actually need the data and this is where the blind spot comes in. It wouldn't occur to us these days to design a program without data on the affected population in relation to age and gender, for instance. We are finally filing after way too long a time struggling to incorporate data on disability, for instance. We're nowhere near getting gender, uh, or nowhere near getting language, sorry. Um, and because we don't, so there, there is incredibly, there is no global authoritative and up-to-date and free data set on the languages that sp people speak and understand. So there isn't a ready reference that humanitarians can go to. Um, and we don't think about language, and so we don't collect data on language. So for instance, when the, the Northeast Nigeria response got going big time, maybe eight or nine years ago, um, organizations turned up and said, great, well, it's an Anglophone country. That's really handy because most of our international staff speak English. Um, and then those 
international staff turned up and needed to recruit teams. They may have asked themselves, what's the big language spoken here? They may have asked government officials there and they would have been told the official language, um, you know, one of the official languages and the one most spoken in Northeast Nigeria, which is Hausa, which is of course a really important regional language. Um, but they didn't ask beyond that and they didn't look to collect data beyond that. And as a result, they did as happens you know, in humanitarian emergencies around the world, they hired national staff, that the ones that are actually gonna implement the program, on the basis of experience and qualifications and the ability to speak English. And their ability to speak with the affected communities was not part of the equation. And to be honest, they wouldn't have been able to, to, to specify which languages should be, should be used. And so the people, even today, the majority of humanitarian communication um, with communities in Northeast Nigeria is happening in Hausa in English. You go to IDP camps, and there are signs up, you know, the disease prevention and control messages, for instance, in English, in a context where very many people don't get an education at all, uh, literacy levels are very low, and English is nowhere on most people's uh, capacity to read. When you describe the problem, it is so obvious, and I, and I don't think anybody who listens to this can really be in doubt that this is such a fundamental issue and that it, it, it deeply affects our ability to deliver appropriate services to the populations we serve, but also impedes on our ability to be accountable to the people we serve. Yes, absolutely. Now, this is not a new problem. When, when were you actually created? Um, well, in our first incarnation, we were created in 1993. Um, it was kind of a corporate social responsibility by two women um, who, Laurie Thick and Ros Smith-Thomas, who were partners in a translation company in Paris, down the road from MSF. And they'd been working with MSF, providing translation services. Uh, and one day they asked MSF, um, if you didn't have to pay for the translation services, what would you do with the money? And they said, well, we'd buy more medicines. So they set up Traducteurs Sans Frontières in, in 93. Um, and then when the Haiti earthquake happened in 2010, they realized that they needed to go a step further because the translation requests they were receiving from their various humanitarian partners were into French. And they said, but hang on a minute, French simply won't cut it in Haiti. If you want to commu communicate with communities, you need Haitian Creole. Um, and they realized they need to go a step further and also look at uh, expanding knowledge of languages as a starting point. Um, and so Translators Without Borders with, was founded. And so just to be clear, the name comes from MSF and, and that link that you described, but organizationally today, you're not affiliated with MSF, you're independent from, from them. Oh, we're entirely independent from it, yeah. But I think it did, it did and it does resonate particularly with, we have this uh, amazing community of about 60,000 linguists around the world. Um, and that idea of language without borders, of, of using language across borders to support other people is one that, you know, that, that very much resonates. The MSF brand does have a certain level of challenge in it. I mean, they speak loudly and clearly, and when they're not happy, you know it. So do you also have a bit of that rebel streak in you? <laughs> I think it's uh, it's probably, well, MSF gets to have that rebel streak because of the independence of their funding. Um, we're not quite as lucky in that regard. Uh, but I think it's easier as a smaller organization um, to come from out of left field and, and speak a little, perhaps a little bit more plainly. But we are we are looking to evolve that brand because I think 
the big problem with translators without borders is that we don't just just translate. I mean, translating is an incredibly important part of what we do. It's the core of what we do, but we do a, a great deal more. We do language mapping, we do research, we provide uh, training and, and terminology work. There's a whole raft um, of services that we provide that isn't really captured in that. And so we're, we're looking at evolving beyond that. So in, in the coming weeks, you're going to see a, an evolution of that, of that brand that, that looks a bit beyond. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you could break the news here. I could break the news here. Um, so what's being discussed at the moment is CLEAR, which is CLEAR Global. CLEAR would stand for Community Language Engagement Accountability and Reach. So CLEAR Global is what we're, we're looking at. We're not losing TWB. That, that remains where we come from. That remains the heart of what we do. Um, but we do a lot more and we're wanting to recognize that too. And also to kind of cut short the conversations where people have assumed that what we're offering is a is a semi-commercial language service, which is not the case. But let's just go back to you as an organization. How many people are you? Where are you headquartered? What, what, are, your, what are your main work streams? Um, so for starters, we have no headquarters, which is lovely. Even before COVID hit, we were largely remote. We're registered in the US as a nonprofit. Um, But yes, we work all over the world. My my direct reports are in uh, Tuscany and Minnesota and Bold no no longer Bordeaux. Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, and and mines. Sorry, so all over the place. I think we're now a hundred and twenty something like that. But it was twenty seven when I joined in in twenty seventeen. So we've grown we've grown a lot, which has its own challenges, but also. It's exciting to see it grow. It says something about a degree of traction that we're beginning to get around this idea that we do need to do something about language as a sector. So you are 120 full-time staff. Yep. And then you mentioned a roster of 60,000 linguists. So it's a network. It's a global network of largely volunteer linguists. Um, some of them are in the diaspora uh, or have moved abroad for whatever reason and are wanting to help people back home. Um, I have a colleague based in Syria um, who, for the longest, he joined us as a volunteer supporting Syrian refugees washing up on the shores of Greece. Um, there's some amazing people in our uh, in this this group of linguists, and I used to be a translator myself. It's a it's a fun thing to have. I mean, you know, as a, a multilingual yourself, it's it's nice, it's enjoyable to, to be able to speak other languages. But it's as a translation, you a translator, you may often be translating quite a lot of you know administrative stuff. To be able to feel that your language superpower enables you to help people who are facing an emergency is a is a pretty fantastic thing, and I think it it motivates a lot of, of the people that volu incredibly volunteer their time to support people who are who are in need of it. And then, what what are your main work streams? Well, it depends to some extent on I mean. Basically, we provide language support. The, the fundamentals of what we do is support two-way communication, so both communicating with and listening to people affected by emergencies. Um, and I should say that I'm speaking now about our humanitarian work. We we believe, but we have much less evidence to support that uh, the same language blind spot exists in the development sector and in things like human rights, climate change. That's not the piece that, that I've been working on so far, but it's entirely relevant. Um, So obviously we need to gear that support to the needs in a particular context. Um, at the moment we have three 
on the ground programs, three country programs, and each of them have tailored what they do to to the opportunities and needs and and the data that they've gathered about about the situation for affected people. So in um, which three locations are you in? Sorry, yeah, northeast Nigeria, DRC, and the Rohingya response in in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. So in in Cox's Bazaar, the situation was that basically the the refugees spoke one language and speak one language, um, and the assumption of the humanitarian community was which speaks a whole rash of languages um, was that uh, they they could communicate by hiring local people from Chittagong because the Chittagongian language is related to Rohingya, and there was an assumption that that was going to be close enough for communication. And yet in, I think it was October 2017, Internews did a survey among refugees about their ability to speak to humanitarians and whether they had, uh, whether they felt they had the information they needed to make decisions for themselves and their families. And the, the results were really stark. I think 56% said they couldn't speak to humanitarians and something over 70% felt they didn't have the information that they needed. And that was because it, actually Chittagonian isn't close enough. I mean, there's, it's very close and that's great and that's really helpful, but just to then assume without any further knowledge that, that that's okay is to do what we typically do as a sector and place the burden of communication on national colleagues without training, without support, without data. And so there, we discovered when TWB arrived um, and was able to, to dig into this a little bit, we discovered that you know, words like pregnant and help and pain and storm are not mutually intelligible between Rohingya and Chittagonian. And so both sides need a little bit of help in that, uh, in that communication. Um, and the organizations need to be aware that that, that is a challenge. Um, so in, in Cox's Bazaar, what we've been able to do is work as part of a, of a consortium uh, with BBC Media Action and Ground Truth Solutions and earlier with Internews that's providing a common service for community engagement accountability. Um, and that's a, yeah, it's a raft of services that's, that's about being part of an existing communication with communities, collective effort. Um, so we're part of decisions about how best to communicate. We're part of, we're able to give advice on the format. We're able to give advice on graphics. And of course we do a lot of, a lot of translation, um, and a lot of support to, and research into the perceptions of the community, what they're understanding, what they're having difficulty with, that we can then relay back to other humanitarian organizations as a basis for them to change the way they're going about things to, to respond to concerns and so on. Um, in, in other situations, so in, in Nigeria, Northeast Nigeria, it was a very different situation. Then you have this communication in Hausa, typically, um, and a population so that IOM's data suggests that something between 30 and 40 languages are spoken by people affected by the conflict in the in the northeast. So there you have a real challenge of how are you going to cater for, for all of those people. So now we provide language support in nine languages, languages of northeast Nigeria. Um, we do as much as we can in audio. We advocate a lot for audio because literacy levels are so low. Um, and one of the exciting things we've done there is work with IOM to make their community feedback mechanism accessible to speakers of marginalized languages and to people whose literacy level is not that great. Uh, so what they did was set up these simple, very simple recording devices in camps um, and people could just leave a message and then TWB, they could leave a message in whatever language they wanted. Then we got the, the recording and 
figured out which language it was um, and and transcribed and translated it. So the, um, what you describe sounds to me like you, you you work as a public good for the humanitarian sector. So it's not a client relationship you have to the individual uh, organization. They don't pay you for your services. We like to think of it as partners when it's bilateral, but so there, there are two models basically. When Whenever we can, it's certainly our preferred option to provide a, a common service across a response, because that means that small NGOs can also access those services. Um, it means that everybody gets access to it. Where we can't do that and we want to work in a bilateral partnership because an, an individual organization has brought us in, then our agreement with them is that anything that we produce, whether it's a, a glossary of terms or training um, or maps or or research findings, that those will be shared with the whole community. And is that typically, uh, when you go into a bilateral relationship, is that typically an NGO? Is it the, one of the big operational UN agencies? Is it OCHA? Who who contracts you? Um, yeah, generally one of the big UN agencies or one of the, the big international NGOs. Um, and, and we have never had a problem with them um, accepting that what we're doing is is for the public good that's uh it's part of our, our ethos and i think those those organizations and those individuals within organizations that get that language is a, a an underacknowledged issue also want that yeah they they, they see that there's a, a need for change across the sector i mean as you speak the the enormity of this just hits me right that's really good to hear it is it's huge it's huge it, and it's from the beginning because we don't have that basic data We make assumptions, we make assumptions that Chittagonian is going to be okay. We make assumptions that house is going to reach everyone. Um, whereas when we could replace that entirely, we hire potentially the wrong people. We, we hire people who aren't going to have the skills, the language skills to do what we're going to ask of them. And then we don't provide them with the training and support. With the, you know, translation and interpreting is so regularly. I've done this myself. I'm guilty of it myself. I had a, a colleague in Eastern Congo years ago who was known to be really good at languages. And I was forever asking him, hey, you speak you know, this language. Would you mind helping me? I didn't really give him an opportunity to say, well, actually, I'm, I'm not that strong in Lindu, so probably best not to. I didn't tell him, this is what I'm going to, I want to ask her about. You know, are you comfortable with those terms or any of those issues, any of those difficult to tr translate? I didn't ask him, um, is this an okay subject for you as a, a Swahili speaking man to be asking her about, or for me as a foreigner to be asking her about? None of that. I just barged right in. I think we typically do, but then, it, but then it, it really is at the fundament. The the research that we've done um, in northeast Nigeria, for instance, we were we interviewed and did comprehension testing with enumerators. Um, who were carrying out needs assessments for various different NGOs. So three teams of enumerators. First of all, we did comprehension testing on terms taken from surveys that they were already using. And in the best case, the team that understood most understood eight out of 10 of these key terms. In the worst case, it was one in 10. Typically, abbreviations, technical terms, abstract nouns, So we don't we we don't always and this isn't everyone. There are some organizations like Reach, for instance, does an amazing job at this. I know ACAPs typically do an amazing job at this as well, who think about language and prepare their enumerators. But that's not typical in in the experience that we've had so far. Um, and certainly in this the, the sample that we had in northeast Nigeria, they were not asked if they understood the survey questions. 
they were not they were expected they were given the survey questions in english normally um and they had they were left to translate that as they wish so if you have content that you don't fully understand and then each person translates it as they think you're not going to get the same question being asked and any data expert will tell you that that's a non-starter for getting good quality data then they're doing an on-site translation from english into hausa um, and then translating the reply that comes back in Hausa into English on their form at speed. You can already see where this is going. Then when the person, we said, well, in, and how does that work? Do people already speak in good enough Hausa? They said, no, often not. So what do you do? Well, in that case, we will we'll simplify the question and we'll use hand gestures. <laughs> and then you get the answer back in hand gestures as well. And when they couldn't find, you know, when the person didn't speak good enough Hausa for that, they would do as the rest of us have and ask a member of the community, often a child, because they're this kind of linguistic sponge creature among us, um, to interpret. Now, if, if the, the enumerator doesn't fully understand the question and the terminology to start with, asking this child to do so is really should be a non-start. We should not be doing that. And and so you have this, this you know, hedge hopping, English to Hausa, Hausa to Waha, Waha question, gets answered, God knows what the question is at this stage, and then it bounces back onto your form in English. And then and then worse, worse even than that, is that sometimes they can't find the child. Sometimes they can't find somebody in the community who speaks good enough Hausa and Waha to, to support that process. And we said, so what do you do? And they were, well, we have no choice. We just have to move on to the next person that we can speak to. And that means that the needs assessment data on which our programs are designed, on which funding decisions are made, Ex routinely excludes an entirely unknown proportion of marginalized language speakers. And those that, those that do get heard, those that do say, yes, you can speak to me, are the people that are most confident in a dominant language. So they're more likely to be those that did get an education, those that are relatively less vulnerable. Yeah, it creates a massive danger of reproducing the inequality that already exists. Yeah. Exactly. And the Tower of Babel just comes to to mind as such a power. Indeed, I mean, you you you're going to have a program that isn't really designed for a section of. It's not designed for marginalised language speakers, at least. Um, it's it then services are set up which don't take language on board. So maybe you're you're that Waha spoke speaking woman, um, and your child is sick, and you take her to the doctor, and you and the doctor can't speak to each other because setting up the service to respond in Waha really wasn't part of the whole plan. Um, and and maybe you, you've given some medicine, you're given ORS or something to, to take away, and the, the instructions on the packet are at best in Hausa. So you rely on somebody else, maybe a neighbor, maybe a family member, typically a younger man who has a better chance of being able to read what's on the back of the, the packet. So, so really, does it make sense to talk about localization if we can't address this language issue? I mean, we it, it's such a, a focus for the sector, but the way you describe it, is, is it is it meaningful if we don't fill this gap? I think we'd have to redefine what local, what we mean by local. Um, it's, we know that it's hard for uh, really grassroots organizations um, in crisis-affected countries to get to the table, to engage with the internationally dominated um, cluster system and, and coordination mechanisms. We don't mean it to be that way. I don't think humanitarians are generally bad people, um, but we're comfortable in our language space, um, and it's in you know it's in 
our languages. It's in, in international languages. We did a really interesting piece of research recently with uh, the Global Education Cluster and the Child Protection Area of Responsibility because they were interested in understanding uh, the reach and uptake of the guidance they produce. They produce a lot of technical guidance based on you know decades of, of work across different countries and they try to make it available to, uh, to cluster members in, in the various countries. Um, so we studied, we, we spoke to practitioners of child protection and education in, in DRC and Bangladesh and Mozambique. Um, and we found that language is one of the huge issues for accessing that content. There were others, there's, you know, internet access, having an electricity supply, having enough hard copies, you know, one hard copy in the staff room um, for, you know, 40 teachers is, is an issue. But also our tendency as a sector not to use plain language, our, love of jargon, which is pretty impenetrable, even to the native English speaker. And I speak as a native English speaker. Um, and, oh, that's a good one. One of my favorite is protection. If you've ever tried to hire a protection officer and found that group four people were rocking up, you realize just how unclear the term protection is. And yet we, we use our jargon like everybody understands it. And that's a, a, a massive challenge. It means you're having an insider conversation and you're having it largely in international languages. And even when, for heaven's sake, I worked in Congo for four years, even in French, you're using English. Um, if your first language is Nande, that's really no help to you. Uh, we saw that in, the, in recent Ebola outbreaks um, in, in DRC, so in the 2018 to 2021, uh, we found that and we've seen it again in Guinea uh, with the latest Ebola outbreak, an English medical term like swab is taken for some reason into French, which has perfectly good words for it, um, and, and turned into a verb. So it's then swabi. And so health communicators in Eastern Congo, and doubtless also in, in Guinea, were, were being trained about this thing called swabi, which happened to when someone had died, as a test to find out whether they'd been infected with Ebola. Um, Typically, what we found in Eastern Congo, in that response at any rate, was that someone whose first language was maybe Swahili or maybe Nande, around the, the Beni-centered outbreak, um, was being trained in French. Or they were maybe being trained in Swahili, but the, the conversation they needed to have with communities was typically in Nande, and they weren't prepared for that at all. The terminology that was being used to train them was not terminology they understood. It, it, it doesn't even exist in a dictionary. It's not real language. Um, so yes, when we, the, to go back to, to what we found out with, the, with this recent research, that use of technical jargon, um, the use of very formal language, the, the failure to think typically about communication, communicating in local languages rather than the official, generally post-colonial language of the country, really lets people down. It's a, it's a significant barrier to, to access. Um, and if we want, and surely as a sector we want, local and national organizations with their vastly superior insights into what's going on and what can change and who is vulnerable to take the leadership in humanitarian action, then and we still want these standards that we've worked so hard to develop um, through, you know, with so much pain still to be applied, then we have to find a way to square that circle. The good news is I think there is a lot more attention to it. If you look on the, the 
you know, kind of the, the, the online libraries for child protection and, and uh, education now, you will see that there are more in recent years, there are more and more uh, guidance materials and so on that are being made available in languages outside the UN languages, but still the number one is English. Still, if, if you can, if you can fluently understand English, then you're far ahead of the pack. And that's really no way to, to get those insights and that, that local expertise to the top of the table. So I think I understand how you influence and improve the operations when you are there, right? So that, that when you translate something obvious, obviously that, that makes it more likely that the aid given is appropriate. But what's your theory of change? Because you can't be everywhere all the time. So, so how are you thinking in terms of system change? Well, we, we do more. Where, where we're present, we do more than provide this, the translation. We also advise, like I'm saying, we advise on, um, on how to set up, for instance, accountability mechanisms so that, that they will be as accessible as possible. We do research to understand what's, what's going wrong in communication between affected people and humanitarians, and, and we advise on that. Um, we are small and feisty, um, and it's a big world with a lot of humanitarian emergencies in it. So we need to we need to raise awareness, and we need to get the first thing is to get the data out there. Because as you say, with any hum, any other humanitarian I talk to about this, the almost universal response is, "Oh goodness, I'd never thought about it like that." But now you say it, it's obvious, pretty much as you said. Um, so you have to have the evidence in front of you. Otherwise, it's it's very easy to assume that it's being taken care of. It's very easy to assume that uh, that national colleagues have got this, except that we haven't prepared them to get this. Um, so the one of the most fundamental things is getting organisations to collect the data. Um, when when reaches MSNA multisexual needs assessment in 2019. For Nigeria included language questions for the first time. That was a real eye opener. We discovered that despite this being the main language of communication for humanitarians, it's a minority language. Um, Thirty-one percent of respondents to the MSNA uh, spoke it as a first language, and forty-one percent couldn't read it. Um, and that changed things. That that influenced. Um, I think the the mine action sector, for instance, started. Uh, developing its guidance in the nine languages that we can offer and, and a lot of other organizations there are, are looking at it similarly. This year, 2021, would be a great year, for instance, for the MSNAs around the world. I mean, there's going to be an, another dozen carried out to add language questions. There's a We're pushing with everyone that will listen to us for at least one question to be added. Very simply, what's the main language you speak at home? Um, and there are three others that we would recommend behind that, which have already been accepted as part of the the ISC's AAP question, kind of standard questionnaire. Um, but I know that people that develop surveys are reluctant ever to add more for the the volume of work that it adds. But it gets you such a wealth of data, and if if the same questions or similar questions, comparable questions, are asked in each context, then we can start to build a picture. So our, th our theory of change is to, is, is to raise awareness through data and through our research and through trying stuff out. I mean, the services that we've developed in the last four years in particular have been on a trial and error basis. We've, you know, we've found what seems to, to work best. Uh, we continue to learn and we, we're lucky enough to have some partners that are interested to learn with us. 
And everything we do, we have to shout about. Everything we do, we need to use through whatever forums we, we can to just to, to draw people's attention to this is not not a, a nice to have, but an absolutely fundamental piece of doing humanitarian programming effectively and accountably, which is uh, a core component of it. Like if you can't, if, if, if certain groups are never going to be able to make a complaint, then we have a problem. This learning process yet that you describe, where is it going to take you, do you think? what When you look at the future, five years, ten years from now, what what is clear or translators without borders? What? How will you have transformed the world if, if things go your way? One thing we will have done that we haven't spoken about so far is we will have moved things a lot a long way forward on the using language technology, developing language technology in marginalized languages. Um, because that Waha speaking woman with the sick child, what she really needs is for Microsoft Translator to work in Waha in order to speak to the doctor. And she needs she needs Google Translate to work in Waha so she can read the back of the, the medicine packet. And that puts it in her hands. She doesn't have to go through, uh, you know, a male neighbor. She doesn't have to go through a humanitarian. Um, she can get the information she wants when she wants it. So that that's a huge piece. And we're working towards that. Um, yeah, building building various tools that can, can can support that. So you're engaging with Google, with Microsoft to influence the way they develop their, their tools? Uh, we we do work with this. It's not about the way they develop their tools. Um, so language machine translation requires a mass of data so that the technology for doing it is out there and organizations like those two have been a big part of developing it um so you need the parallel data you need the waha text and its english equivalent and you need masses and masses of that for machine translation so one of the things that we do and the agreement that we have with all of our partners um is that content that we translate humanitarian content that we translate we will we will use as parallel text to build that uh, that translation capacity. Um, and there are exciting possibilities around that. For voice translation, which is obviously much more relevant for most of the planet, since most of the planet are not that strong on reading and writing, um, we, what we, you, sorry, for voice data, for voice translation, you need less data than for, for text. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities there that we can develop. And we're working... We're working with Kobo, for instance, as one of the most widely used data collection tools um, in the humanitarian sector to look at integrating automated transcription um, into, their, into their tools, which would enable the sector to listen more directly, not through some kind of a gatekeeper to, to uh, people directly affected. But beyond that, I think it would be lovely. I think the we're already seeing a big uptake in demand for uh, marginalized language services. Um, I'd really like to see that overtaking the UN languages. Uh, I think we, we're we keen to work with translators and linguists uh, to build their capacities and to build the capacities of the language services industry in crisis affected countries so that that capacity is there. It shouldn't have to be a TWB in the middle. Um, so, so more uh, national and local language capacity that's established that works well that you know the aid organizations know where to find it and they they know how to deal with humanitarian texts and, and provide humanitarian services um yeah and just if we are to leave no one behind we need to be tracking it um and so 
in in five or ten years' time, it would be wonderful if it was standard for uh, humanitarian programs to collect data on the languages of the service users and to track you know health outcomes, education outcomes against that. And so, what what are your What's your wish list for the individual humanitarian who's listening to this and who's wondering how he or she can help out with the with the work? What do you want them to do? What's your call to action? Uh, think about language. See, see language. Stop it being invisible. Think about it. Talk about it. Ask questions about it. And the first thing to do is ask the people that you are serving about their language and communication preferences, and then take it from there. It's a lot of this is really not rocket science. Um, It, it just needs not to be invisible anymore. Eli Kemp, thank you so much for coming on to Humanitarian. Thank you for all the work you do in Translators Without Borders. Thank you for helping us see the blind spot. It's it's such a it's such a fundamental piece, um, and you sometimes wonder how we have been able to function for so long without really focusing on this. So thank you. Thank you very much. About the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>